switch gears. We're in the book of James, and we are actually getting close to the end of the book of James. We've been in James since March, and, uh, and so we're going to be in this till the end of this month. And so we've been covering a lot of big topics uh, with James because that's what James does. He is, uh, like we talked about, this book is sort of like a punch in the gut. Uh, He throws a lot of things out there. He throws a lot of practical things out there about how we should live a life that honors God. And so we're going to continue to be challenged today by James. And so what I want to do is I want to start chapter 4, verse 1. And let's just start this, uh, this conversation. He starts off pretty strong. Ready? What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Straight up, he just, like, here we go today. We're, we're in it already. What ca- what's causing all these fights and these quarrels among you? James is talking to the church, okay, the church in Jerusalem, and he's bringing correction. And obviously, because of this, we know that they're having a lot of fights. They're having a lot of quarrels. There's dissension in the ranks. There's disunity. There's the old he said, she said, you know, no, you meant this. He talked about words in chapter 3. So there's just this war of words going on. And, uh, and, and you know, honestly, it's, it's not much has changed. Uh, church, there's still quarrels and fights among us. Um, I actually brought an example today of, of some quarrels and fights and what they might look like um, from, a, from a funny standpoint. So go ahead and put that first, that first picture up. This is, uh, this is some church sign wars, all right? So on one side of the street, you've got this church here, Our Lady of Martyrs. That's a tough name of a church, but <laughs> anyway, all right. <laughs> it says, all dogs go to heaven. That's the, uh, that's the first. I don't know what brought on this first sign, but this is where it starts. The next, the next sign says this, though. Across the street, Beulah Presbyterian Church says, only humans go to heaven. Read the Bible. <laughs> right? To which then the church across the street then says, God loves all his creatures or creations, dogs included. To which then the Presbyterian church across the street, dogs don't have souls. This is not open for debate. <laughs> it's not over yet. It gets better. Then the other church, Catholic dogs go to heaven. Presbyterian dogs can't talk to their pastor. Right? We're starting to get a little bit more personal here. Then converting to Catholicism does not magically grant your dog a soul. We're getting theological. We're getting personal. Well, the Catholic Church comes back, says free dog souls with conversion. <laughs> Just freely giving those out. The next one. Dogs are animals. There aren't any rocks in heaven either. You can see that the smile is beginning to become a scowl, Right? Come on, like it just kept getting worse and worse. And that's what happens, right? It starts off small and then it grows and it gets worse and worse. Man, it was funny. Like it was funny, funny. (laughs) So it gets worse and worse. It starts as like a small quarrel, a few words, and it just grows and grows. And that's a funny one. But most of the fights and quarrels that happen in churches, between churches, and throughout the entire body of Christ are not very funny. It's honestly, it's, it's, it's a shame sometimes the things that happens. And, uh, and so we've got to be careful of this. But the big thing that James is saying here is what's causing those quarrels? What's causing you guys to do this? The second part of, of verse 1, is it not this, 
that your passions, your sinful, self-indulgent pleasures are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet, you want what someone else has and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask, which a lot of people stop right here. Yeah, just ask, right? When we take that verse by itself and it's just, just ask and you shall receive. And that's the only thing. But no, James is saying this. You ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly. You're asking for these things. These things that you desire are actually birthed out of sinful desires, which are selfish. And the things that you're asking for are you're asking wrongly because you want to spend those things on your own passions. So you want stuff for selfish reason, reasons. He's exposing their motives. He's exposing their, their motives that they are being selfish. 1 Peter 2.11 says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now, this is very important, which wage war against your soul. So these selfish passions that you're experiencing, they don't just affect other people. Actually, more than that, they are destroying yourself. The sinful passions that we have that a lot of times we, we play patty cake with, that we, uh, that we look to as just, uh, I don't know, personality conflicts or just, oh, that's kind of like my weakness. These things are birthed out of sinful passions which are evil. Last week we talked about worldly wisdom. Our sinful nature is evil and it's at war at your soul, in your soul, to destroy you. And so what does it look like? What does the sinful nature, what does sinful passions look like? How does it play out in your life? How is it self-destructive? Well, I've got a few things I want to read to you. When others succeed, the sinful nature produces envy. The sinful nature says it should have been me. Right? That's what it looks like. When you do something good, the sinful nature is self-righteous. It says, look what I did. Right? Look what I accomplished. When you suffer, when you suffer, the sinful nature indulges in self-pity. Plays the victim. When your work is not recognized or appreciated, the sinful nature gets resentful. When you are in a conflict, the sinful nature produces self-justification. It says, I'm right. I'm, I'm right. How many of you... When's, how many, you can't remember the last time that you said you're wrong, right? I, I'm never really wrong. I'm, I'm only partially, I'm mostly right. Like you can't ever just say I'm wrong. That's what the sinful nature does. So he goes on in verse four, you adulterous people. How about if I came out one day today and just, hey, good morning, Northwood. Welcome to church. <clears throat> Got something quickly I want to say. You bunch of adulterers. <laughs> we can't say things like this nowadays, but we can read it in the Bible. You adulterous people. <laughs> Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or hostility with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He says, by the way that you're quarreling, the way that you're operating in your sinful desires, you are actually a, a committing adultery on God. 
In the Bible, you read um, uh, stories where we are, we are the bride of Christ, where there is this connection between us and God, where um, uh, even, even uh, the, the church is considered to be married to Jesus as far as um, uh, in the book of Ephesians. You can read these things. There's this, there's this illustration. And so he goes there and he says that the way that you're acting, you're acting like an adulterer. You're operating out of worldly wisdom. You are, you're cheating on God. You can't be a friend of the world and a friend of God. You cannot be committed and submitted to God and committed and submitted to the world at the same time. Jesus talked about this in John 15. He said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This is a very um, sensitive or, or complex thing to talk about because the church nowadays, overall, honestly, we want, to, we want to befriend the world, the people who are people who are unbelievers, people who are far from God. But we have to do that in a way that we don't compromise truth and we don't become like the world. And this tension is difficult. It's very difficult because people, feel, people say, well, Jesus was a friend of sinners. Yeah, but Jesus wasn't a sinner, right? Like, like well, Jesus hung out with us. Yeah, he did, absolutely. He did those things on mission out of compassion with a purpose, not just to become like them because he liked what they were about. But many times people, they have this mindset, and so they become like the world. And Jesus said, James says, Paul said, everybody says in the Bible, there is a separation between us and the world. We don't live like the world. We don't process information like the world. If you look around you and people that don't know God, you agree with, right? If you agree with them in, um, in regards to morality, if you agree with them and you live like them in regards to, um, I mean, in and in a lot of just how they live life, it might be good to check yourself and say, how am I so aligned in all of these, these things with all of these people who also are completely against God? But then there's so many people who love Jesus that I'm not like and I don't agree with. Now, I, we could go on and on about that one because there's some... Not everybody that says they love Jesus loves Jesus, okay? But at the same time, it, we have to stop and slow down and say, man, am I a friend of the world? Am I not just a friend of sinners, but am I literally like those sinners? Do I live life like them? This is kind of what James is saying. He's like, he's like if you do, you're an adulterer. Verse five, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scriptures say, basically this is, he's saying, this is why the scriptures say, he, God, yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. God is a jealous God. He desires our undivided devotion, our loyalty, our commitment. In the 10 commandments, right? No other God before, before me. This has always been, God has always wanted our attention, our affection, our love. And he freely gives his love to us. It's kind of like a marriage. It's kind of like being married, but yet at the same time having a side person. 
right? Like, like a side chick, a side guy, somebody on the side that is just sort of like a person you have fun with. I'll put it that way. And many people don't like to look at it this way, but I do. The, our relationship with God is, is, it has to be looked at in, to, to this degree or we will take it lightly. Also, God wouldn't have used these terms. He wouldn't have used these, these sort of terms in, in, in the word of God as he inspired people to write them. What's the side thing or the side person in your life that's pulling you away from God? That's distracting you from having undivided devotion and loyalty to him. God desires total commitment. But verse six, but God gives more grace. Many of y'all were waiting for the but God moment in in the verse, right? You just called me an adulterer. I don't appreciate that. Oh, the grace, here we go. But God gives grace and he does. He gives grace because he knows we need a lot of it. A lot of it, continually, consistently, because left to ourself, we are going to continue to, to lean away from God. It's our sinful nature. We have this sinful inclination that's resistant to God. But he gives more grace. Verse six, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. So, the scriptures say in Proverbs and all throughout scripture, you can see where God hates pride, but he gives grace to humility. He hates pride. And I would venture to say that, that we are some of those, the most prideful people on the face of the planet right now. Something about being successful and prosperous leads to pride. I don't know what it is, right? But it does. And as a nation, we just... We're just so prideful, man. And, and I don't mean in a positive way. I mean in a negative way. We're so prideful. We've got it. How many of you, you can't ever, nobody can ever ask you if, if you need help? I got it. You sure, man? It looks like you're about to drop that large piece of furniture. I'm good. I'm good. It's just awkward. It's not heavy. You know? <laughs> How many of you, you know? It's never heavy. Come on, guys. It's never too heavy. It's just too awkward. You know, if it was the right proportion, you'd be able to carry it. So many people walking through life like that. I'm good. I'm good. I got it. No, it's just a little bit awkward. I just got to shift my grip a little bit. We got it. We're good. You're not good. You're not okay. Stop being prideful. God resists those who are prideful and proud, but he gives grace to those who are humble. So why does God resist the proud? Do you ever think about that? Like what's so bad about pride and being proud in in this area? Matthew Henry uh, wrote a commentary in the 1600s, by the way, long, long time ago. And this is what he said about why God resists the proud. The proud resist God. In their understanding, they resist the truths of God. In their will, they resist the laws of God. And in their passions, they resist the providence of God. Therefore, no wonder that God resists the proud. That's why. Because prideful people, it never just stays with pride against men. It always becomes pride against God. Always. That's why spiritual pride 
is such a horrible root in people's lives who, who call themselves Christians. Self-righteousness, all these things where at some point you go from this place of, po- this posture of total humility saying, I am nothing without you, Lord. I am broken, I am empty, I'm undone. I have nothing to bring to you. And then over years, many people begin to fall into spiritual pride, which is like, look how far I've come in my relationship with Jesus. Man, look how much I know, right? Look, you should all be like me. Look at the standards I live by. Look how successful I am, right? It it started in brokenness and humility, and it ends up over here, and look at me. It's the progression of pride, and it can happen in so many facets of your life, so many areas. It's why we need to remain humble, because eventually it trails into, it seeps into our relationship with God. So in order to access the grace of God, which is really what he's trying to communicate to them, he's like, don't be proud, because Because God will resist you, but he gives grace to the humble. So how to be humble? What does that look like? Verse 7, number 1, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. Resist the way of the world. Resist, come on, last week we talked about worldly wisdom. Resist worldly wisdom, and he, the enemy, will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. You double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Man, this is such an encouraging verse to read on a Sunday morning. You guys are so excited right now. This just, aren't you being encouraged right now? We'll get to why he says that in a moment. But the first thing he said is is to submit to God and to resist the enemy. You see, resistance to the enemy comes through submission to God. So many times people separate these two things. And it's like they're trying so hard to just resist the enemy. They have all of their attention and focus on the enemy. They're just looking at what the enemy, ever hear somebody say, man, the enemy has just really, really been beating me up lately. I mean, like, really. I mean, he is so strong and powerful and mighty and deceptive. I tell you, the enemy. And it's like, stop saying that, you know? Like, come off that side of, yes, resist the enemy, but, but more importantly, submit to God. The very next thing, Draw near to God. Years ago, I, I heard somebody teach about how um, they, they kind of correlated this scripture to, to like the sun. And the closer that you get to the sun, the more warmth there is and the more light there is. And, but at the same time that you're drawing closer to the sun, you're drawing further away from the darkness, from the, the cold, from the emptiness. And some of you, you need to hear this today. You need to stop trying to resist the devil so much. And you need to start just drawing closer to God. Draw close to him. It's amazing that as you focus your attention upon him, that drama begins to cease. The the, the things that seem like mountains become molehills, right? 
And it's not because I'm just going to look at that mountain differently. No, it's because you turned your attention to Jesus and you're drawing closer to him and those things get smaller. Some of you, you're dealing with such shame and fear, like it riddles your life and you're trying so hard to speak to that fear. I speak to you, fear. I speak to you, fear. You know, and and like it gets all like this and it's like, stop talking to the enemy so much, man. Stop, glor- stop glorifying. I mean, come on. If, if you're the enemy, don't you want them to talk about you a whole lot and be focusing in on you? Right? Focus on me. Turn your attention to me. Whenever God's saying the thing on the other end. Right? James says, draw close to God and he'll draw close to you. God never moved. Some of you, you've been so close at certain times in your life where you were filled with joy and peace. You were filled with the the fruit of the spirit in your life. And now you're standing here or sitting here tonight, today, and and you're like, God, where are you? Anytime that I ever pray that prayer, immediately it's, well, God, you're stable. You're steady. You're you're everywhere. I'm the one who moved. So I need to draw closer to God. And he's like, hey, guys, you know, the closer you draw to something, you could technically say it's also drawing close to you. Draw close to God. Turn your affection and your attention from God. Some of you, you might need to take to heart today. You may be slightly adulterous in your relationship with Jesus. You want that marriage between you and the Lord to, to be healed? Put away the side thing. Put away the thing that's drawing you further from him and that the healing will take place. <laughs> Submit, resist, draw closer to God. He'll draw close to you. These are instructions that James is giving us. And the last of the two last things that he says is to cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. All throughout scripture, you, you read this, this, um, these, these pictures of cleansing your hands. You go to the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Whenever they entered into the tabernacle, there was, there was the labor and there was different things that you would cleanse yourself. And this represents what we should do as people is we should be consistently being cleansed by the word, being cleansed by the water of the word, being cleansed by, by the blood of Jesus, who is the remission for our sin. We live a lifestyle of this. It's not one time cleanse your hands, one time purify your hearts. It's consistently out of humility, falling before Jesus and saying, Lord, today I need your grace and your mercy today, just as much as I needed it yesterday. Did you know that if you're a a believer here today and you have, you've matured, right? You, You know the word, right? Did you know that you need the grace of God just as much today as you did whenever you didn't know the name of Jesus? Just as much. There's not a graduation from that. You never graduate the high school of salvation. Like, you never. You're perpetually in that. And then he says, turn your laughter to mourning and joy to gloom. This is why he says this. Because the church, they were satisfied and laughing and full of joy whenever they were in a place where they should have been broken and embarrassed of how they were living. Where they had such confidence in themselves, they should have been broken and realized how terrible they were acting, right? And he's like, hey, your laughter, your joy, your excitement about what you got going on, 
Like, that should be converted to tears. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you thought you were doing really, really good, and then, like, the lights came on, and you're like, I'm really not doing that well. I'm not doing that well. But you don't really know whenever you're in the moment. But whenever you get out of that place, you look back, and you're like, oh, my goodness. You know, we, we all go through ebbs and flows in life, and uh, we, we, we're on mountains, we're in valleys, right? These, these things take place. And um, I was just talking to somebody recently, and I was sharing with them that not too long ago, uh, for me, I was really unhealthy emotionally. I was just, I was not in a good place. But what had happened was uh, the, the, the boiling water, right? The frog in the boiling water just didn't really, un- didn't really know until there was a moment where something that I usually would love and enjoy I didn't even want to be there. I was despising that moment where I should have been like, you know, excited. I mean, it was a positive thing and I felt no joy. I actually just wanted to go, like leave that situation. And it was in that moment, I I literally, I almost said it to myself, you're not healthy. You know, I hit a wall and then my eyes, thank God, you know, I believe the Holy Spirit illuminates things that that are going on in our life. And, And and showed, like, you're not in a good place, and, and you need to make some changes, right? Some of you today, like, you need to have that moment today where, where you think everything's fine, you think you're good, but you need that moment where the Holy Spirit opens up your eyes to see where you're really at, because you may not be. You might be laughing, and really, you know, that, that laughing needs to turn to mourning, to brokenness. You may be super prideful, and you think you're humble, And that pride needs to convert itself to humility. By the way, pride doesn't always look super boastful. Pride pride sometimes looks like playing the victim or it looks like insecurity. There's a lot of different forms that pride takes, but it's the same thing. It's all rooted in selfishness. It's all rooted in pride. So what, what, what am I joyful about today that I might should be turning to gloom about, repenting of? There's a story in the Bible that really points to this that Jesus spoke about. And it's honestly, for me, I think it is my favorite story in the Bible. And uh, I wanted to share it with you because I think that all of these points are illustrated in this story. And I heard this story uh, talked about a long time ago. We were in a, a youth encounter, a youth retreat. And one of the leaders shared this story and um, I don't know, it just really impacted me. It's been a story that has has sustained me through certain seasons as well. And it's the story of the prodigal son. And in case you don't know the story, there's a couple things I'm gonna embellish, so give me a little bit of liberty, right? But what it is is there's two sons and a father, and they sort of live like kind of up on this hill, sort of on a farm, right? Dad's got a lot of money, got a lot of animals, all these good things. And, and, you know, they, they grow up, and down at the, the bottom of this hill, it's kind of like between two of the mountains, there's, there's a city. And this boy, the younger boy, he grows up always seeing the city, right? He always sees the city. And every now and then they would go to the city maybe to buy some stuff, but they always, they always came back home. And so many nights he would sit on that front porch and he would look out and he would see the glow of the city. And, you know, if it was like festival season or whatever, man, he'd, he'd hear the sounds of the parties, Right? And, and he, he was always curious, like, what's going on 
right now in the city. Like, I know what's going on in the daytime, whenever we go get some food and all that good stuff, but like, right now, what's happening? Like, I want to be that. And he would ask his dad, and his dad was like, no, son, they're just, they're just doing some things, but we're, we're not going to go. It's not how we live. It's not what we do. We live a little bit different than that. But, but it didn't, that answer didn't suffice this young boy because he was curious about what was really going on in the city. And as he got older, he starts growing up and he's like, I mean, I, like, I really want to go to the city. Like, I got to go see what's going on. And of course, as he gets older, he also realizes that one day he's going to get an inheritance and he's going to get some money. He's going to get He's going to get his, and he's going to be able to live his life the way that he wants to live his life. And then he turns 18, gets old enough, and he says, Dad, I want my inheritance now. Like, I, I don't want to wait till you die. I don't, I don't want to wait till you, like, whatever. I don't know when that's going to happen. I want it now because I want to go live life. And his dad resists it and says, Son, no, that's just, that's not the way that this is supposed to happen. But he kept, pre- keeps pressing, keeps pressing. And eventually his dad gives in, gives him his money, gives him his inheritance, and he leaves. He leaves the house, and he goes to the city. He goes to the place that he's been hearing about, he's been longing for, and he begins to live it up. He gets wrapped up with the money people, right? He gets the best, the best houses. He gets all the friends. He throws the best parties. He just starts living lavishly, and he, he becomes very popular. And everything is booming. It's good. Life is good. It's fun. And then a famine hits the, the land. The economy tanks. And all of his investments and everything that he had going on, it just collapsed. So whenever his, the economy collapsed, his possessions, his money, all of that collapsed too. And so with that, all of his connections, all of his relationships, all of those people that he thought had his back, they did not. They were there as long as the money was. And whenever the money ran out, so did they. So he ends up with nothing. All the money is gone. Everything's foreclosed on. It's, it's done. He ends up finding a job out on the edge of town at this farm, feeding the animals, just like he did back at his dad's place. Like full circle, huh? And he's feeding these animals, and, and he, he's, he's hungry. He has nothing. He gets to a point where he's feeding the, the pigs, and he begins to want to eat what the pigs are eating. That's how desperate he is, and that's how much at the bottom of the barrel that he's at. And he has this epiphany. He has this moment where he's like, I mean, even my dad's servants, even the ones who were lowest on the totem pole, the bottom of the barrel, they, they had it better than I have it right now. They had a place to live. They had good food. They were respected. My dad was a good boss. Like, they had it better than what am I, like, what have I done? And he hits the wall in his life. And in this moment, he concocts this idea. He's like, okay, I know I need to go back home, but I know that my dad is probably not going to take me back. I wouldn't. And so he comes up with this, this, this speech He's like, like, Dad, I'm, I'm sorry. I repent. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I just want to be a servant in the house. And so he gets up enough guts and, and he starts making the journey back home. And he has this expectation of what he's going to meet whenever he gets home. An angry father, 
a changed environment, one that he's probably not invited to be a part of anymore. So as he's walking up that hill, you can picture it, this is this long winding road, and he's walking up that hill. The Bible says that the father sees him a long way off. And it says that the father's heart was moved with compassion. And that the father began to run to his son, began to run to him. And he meets his son, he smelt bad, he was dirty, he, he had wasted everything. And so he, the son looks at his dad and, and again, he starts his whole spill, right? Like, I'm not worthy. I just wanna be a servant. And the Bible says that the dad doesn't even acknowledge what the son says. He turns around and he yells at the servants. He says, kill, kill the fatted calf. Come on, we're throwing a party tonight because my son who was gone is now back home. And he receives him back. And it says that he put a robe on him. He put a ring on his finger. He put sandals on his feet. All of those things represent so many things that we're not gonna get into right now. But basically, he restored the son right back to the place where he was like he never left. That is the love of Jesus. That is, that is the compassion of the father. The son, he resisted God in the beginning. He resisted his father who represents God to us. He left. He ended up broken. His laughter turned to mourning, right? The things that he was joyful about turned to gloom. But he humbled himself and he drew near to the father and the father accepted him back. Some of y'all have got to hear this today. You have wondered. You were at home. You were safe. You knew Jesus. For some of you, what I'm talking about is it actually represents your physical life. You grew up in a wonderful home. You grew up in church. You know what the presence of God is. You know what the grace and the love of the Father is. You've heard this story 10 times in Sunday school. You know what I'm talking about. But life drew you away from the safety of the home. Drew you away. Some of you, you knew Jesus, but you've been drawn away. And sin is consistent in this that it always leads to destruction. It always does. There is a season of joy. There is a season of excitement, absolutely. But eventually, eventually it leads to destruction. For this young kid, it was, it was pretty quick. But then something happens in your mind. It's whenever you begin to think about coming back, you assume that the father has the same attitude towards you that you would have towards the person that did it to you. It's not that way. God's grace is abundant. Where sin abounds, grace abounds. And so all you have to do is humble yourself. Break before Jesus. Some of you, again, you, you, know, you know what this is like. You know about the compassion. And you came, you came humble at one point, but now you've fallen into pride. And now you feel like you can't go back. Yes, you can. Verse 10 of James says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. You can't exalt yourself. You can't get clean enough to come to Jesus. You can't do it on your own. You must be exalted up, lifted up. 
healed, restored, that robe that, that was put on that son, that ring that was put, you don't have that. God does. He will clothe you in his righteousness, not your own. And his grace is here right now. All you have to do is humble, humble yourselves and submit to him. Let's close our eyes and bow our heads. Father, your grace is here. Your grace for salvation, your grace for healing. God, right now, I pray that you pour it out on, pour it out on us. Today, Jesus, God, I pray that you would open up our eyes. Lord, that you would open up our ears to hear your voice. God, to realize that your grace is sufficient for us in every season, in our brokenness. Come on right now, some of you, you've been swimming in guilt. You've been swimming in shame. Today, God wants to set you free of that. Some of you have been following these sinful passions, these sinful desires. They're at war within you. You feel such tension. You feel no release. Today, God wants to set you free from that. Some of you are far from God. You're very far from God. You know it. You know that right now, that if you, if you die, that you would not spend eternity with Jesus. You know that. Today, God's hand is outstretched to you. God's grace is here for every situation, for every trial, for every circumstance, no matter the brokenness in your life right now, no matter the broken relationships, no matter the confusion. If we draw near to God, he draws near to us. He heals and restores. Father, right now we humbly come before you and we ask for you to pour out your grace on our lives, to bring healing where there is sickness, to bring restoration where there's brokenness, we need you. We cannot do this on our own. If you're here and you're not saved, just say, Lord, I give you my life. I repent of my sin. I ask that you forgive me of all the things that I've done that are, are wrong. But God, replace the heart of sin that's in me. Replace it with a heart of flesh that responds to you, that knows you. I give you all that I am today. God, today we thank you for saving people. We thank you for opening up our eyes and ears to hear what it is that you're speaking to us. Bring restoration here today in Jesus' name. Amen. Look, if you said that prayer today, maybe you, you gave your life back to God or maybe you gave your life to God for the first time, we wanna come alongside you and help you on this journey. You just started something new. You started a new journey in life. And so we wanna come alongside you and help you in this. Very quickly, there's a, there's a card in the seat pocket in front of you. It's a next steps card. And we just wanna, again, come alongside you. And this is how we do that. By you giving us some information and we're gonna reach out to you this week, help you take some next steps. We know it's a big room with a lot of different people here, a lot of different journeys. And whether, whether it's your first time or your 10th time, we want to help you. So today, please take that card, fill it out and take it to the back of the room at the end of the service. Also, we're gonna have some people at the front of the room at the end of the service to pray with you. I know that a message like this drudges up so many things in our heart and in our life. It really does. And sometimes we walk out 
and we never like, we never have closure. We never have a moment where we truly respond. And that's why we kind of do what we, we do at the end of these services to give everybody a, a moment to respond, not just to hear me say a bunch of words, but to truly come before Jesus and respond. And so we have some people at the front of the room who would love to pray with you if you're going through anything in your life. And uh, it's confidential. These are wonderful people. They love Jesus and they wanna serve you in that way. But before we dismiss, we wanna do one, one more thing together. We wanna worship. I want you to stand to your feet. One of the ways that we respond to God, we respond to the word of God is where we respond in song and we worship him and we thank him for his goodness, but we also submit ourselves to him. We're gonna sing this song, Lord, I need you. And I want you, maybe you've been a little bit prideful lately, right? You've been a little bit prideful. Now is the moment to resubmit your heart to Jesus, amen? Come on, let's sing this together. Come on, clap your hands. Lift up the name of Jesus. God, we celebrate you for what you've done in this place today. God, that lives are restored. Marriages are healed. Father, the things that are broken in our lives are being made right because of Jesus and the victory that we have in him. So God, I pray that you seal everything that was spoken today, those scriptures that were read, that they would truly seep into our hearts and our lives, not just be something for today, but be something that, that alters the way that we live our lives. God, that we would live our lives for your glory, your honor. We lift you up in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, come on, today was a good day, huh? Come on, again, I want to encourage you this week. To, uh, to be a light in a dark place. Come on, let's be salt in this earth tonight, impact night. We'll see you there. Come on, it's also last week of small groups. Make sure you get in your small groups this week. We will see you later on. Bye-bye.